How's everybody doing this morning? Great to see you all. I know the kids are going to have an awesome time downstairs for their fall festival. They got all kinds of, you know, they're probably going to be a little sugared up by the time they leave. <laughs> and you can blame that fully on Miss Robin. It is totally her fault. Well, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity where we've gathered in your name. We've come to worship you. We've come to honor you. And we've come to open up your word. And I thank you, Lord, that your word is still the same today as it was when it was written. We thank you that it is still powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides between what are your thoughts and what are our thoughts. And God, we want your thoughts on things because your thoughts are higher. Your ways are better. And so today we've come and we've set this time aside for you. And as we open your word, Holy Spirit, we know you take hold with us and you bring forth revelation, knowledge, exactly what we need in this season. Because you know our hearts. You know our thoughts. You know what's going on in our lives. And so we just thank you that you get to us what we need right now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, good morning to everybody who's joining us via online. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and grab a notepad to take some notes and just jump right in with us. We're glad that you've taken time as well today. Well, we're going to continue on in our series on the nature and the character of God. And so we're like 16 weeks deep into this, and so we've covered a lot because there's a lot to cover when you talk about God's nature. There's a lot to cover when you talk about his character and who he is and what he wants to do and what is the cornerstone of who he is. You know, how can you just give it one or two weeks when the whole Bible is about him and revealing his character and how he is trustworthy day after day? The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we look at these characteristics, it's like, oh, that was nice that he was like that back then. No, we go, no, that's how he is today. And as he was for one, he'll be for another because he is no respecter of persons, which means he doesn't value one over the other. He loves all his creation. He loves all of his sons and daughters, and he will go out of his way for one person standing in faith. Come on. Uh, Smith Wigglesworth used to say that. He said, it seems like God will pass over a million people to get to one person standing in faith. Yeah. It's not about what you know. It's about what you believe and what you're willing to contend for, saying, yes, God, I know this is how you are. Amen? Yeah. Well, before we get too further off track, why don't you go ahead, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And it looks like someone's been playing with this. It's all loose on me. Let's see if I can tighten it back up. Wobbly, wobbly, wobbly on me. There we go. Matthew chapter 15. And so what we need to know before we can read here in verse 21 is Jesus has been having a very contentious conversation with the Pharisees, with his disciples present. And he said to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And he's saying, you say all these fancy words, but you don't actually mean them. You know, he called the, the Pharisees out another time. He's like, you like to stand out on the street corners and you pray prayers with lots of words so that everybody can see you. But he's saying, I know what you actually think. I know what's actually in your heart. And so he goes on to tell his disciples while the Pharisees are listening, he said, it's not what goes in to you that defiles a person, but what comes out of your heart. And when he said that, he was talking about they had all the religious rules, they had all the sacrifices and everything that they had to do, and God was saying, that will never make you worthy. That will never make you holy. It's what a man believes. 
Jesus says, believe in the heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you'll be saved. And so he knows what's in the heart. And so as he said that to his disciples, the disciples turned to Jesus and he said, don't you know, this is what they said to him, don't you know that the Pharisees were very offended at what you had to say? <laughs> Jesus said, don't worry about them. They are the blind leading the blind. And anytime you have someone who's trying to put pressure on you, you got to do this so God can be happy with you. That's the blind leading you astray because we with open face and open heart behold him and we are transformed from glory to glory. And so he's had this rough conversation and in verse 21 is where we want to pick it up. It says, then Jesus went out from there and he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he needed to put a little space between him and the Pharisees. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. Now you'd almost think Jesus is being a little rude here. Here she is, she's crying out, come on, Jesus, I, I need help, help me, help me, help me. And it says that the, his disciples came to him and said, send her away, she's making a big commotion. So she's outside, and he's inside, and they can hear her, Jesus, help me, help me. And it seems as though he's, he's ignoring her, and why is that? Well, if we look at Mark's account in Mark 7, it says, from there he arose, and he went into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered into the house, and he wanted no one to know it. So Jesus is having a very human moment at this moment. We've just had a, an intense discussion, and he's like, I just need a moment alone. Ever been there? It's like, don't talk to me. You come home from work, and the kids are going, ah, and it's like, hold on a second. I need a moment to reset. And so Jesus is having one of those very natural moments. And it says that he could not be hidden. People were saying, Jesus is in there. He's right there. And so people were finding him, and the woman of Canaan was one of those women. And it said he answered, and he said to her, after his disciples urged him, you know, deal with her. Come on, we're not going to get any rest unless you talk to her. And so he went out, and he said, I wasn't sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which was not a lie. At this point, Paul told us, that Jesus had to come first to the house of Israel, and once they rejected him, Jesus said, now that you've rejected me, that's the, the, what uh, you ignore, I'm going to bring into the family. It says he uses the, the example of an olive tree, that they were cut off and he grafted in us. And so in that time, he was there for the Jews, because the Jews needed to reject him so that he could open it up to the world. And so he says, I wasn't authentic for you, you're not my problem, is what he was saying. You're not one of my children. You're not one of, the, one of the Israelites. I haven't come for you at that moment. But what she said next changed everything. She came and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, Master, help me. And last week we started talking about God, the high name of God, and the characteristic of him being Adonai, being our master, and being our Lord. And we talked about that this came out from the, the concept in Exodus chapter 21, where when a slave had been set free, they as a free person could say, you know what, I love my master. I don't want to be free. 
I want to come and join your household and be with you, stay with you, let you be my master, and I'll continue to serve you as a free person. And so when we talk about Jesus being the master or God being the master over our life, this is never from a forced position. He only accepts free people. And that's what he came to do. He died on the cross so that you could be free and that you from a place of freedom could make that choice that I don't want to leave your house. I want to stay here with the good master, the one who I know who can protect, provide, and direct, the one who I yield myself to. And so when we talk about Adonai, it's never from a position of you have to do this. This is a position of I choose you as my Lord. And then I was thinking about it. I can't remember a single message over the last 10, 15, 20 years that I've heard when someone was talking about this concept of God being our master. And there's a very specific reason for it. Society does not value that. And sometimes we are more programmed by what the world thinks than what God actually says. And what he said was come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when you choose to serve me, it's a yoke of freedom. It's a yoke of lightness. The world will always lay heavy things on you. God leads you into freedom and peace. And so the world doesn't value it. They value something different. I'm a strong, independent person. I don't need no one. Really? You don't need anybody? And we've seen this invade the church as well. Oh, I don't need, I don't need the church. I, I can be, have my relationship between God and me. Uh, actually, Paul said, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. And the part of the body that you think is not necessary, it says that God gives the most honor. And so when we look and say, oh, I don't need my brothers and sisters in Christ, you're wrong. He's not looking for strong, independent people. He's looking for yielded, dependent people. Because Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing or no thing. And so we think, oh, I want to be strong and I want to be independent. And, he's, and what basically you're saying is, I don't want to bear fruit. I don't want to increase. I don't want to grow. And if you're thinking I can do it on my own, go ahead and cut a branch off a tree at home and see what happens to it. Come on. You go ahead and try it. Dylan works in cleaning up trees and stuff like that. What happens when you cut the branches off? They die. <laughs> they die. You were designed to be in union, in connection, and having the Father be the source of all things in your life. You know, David said in Psalm chapter 16, verse 1, Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge, or for safety, or for protection. And he said, I said to my Lord, You are my master. And every good thing I have comes from you. And so we have this idea of independence and strength apart from God. Well, Paul said, be strong in the Lord, which is the word for master, and in the power of his might. And you may be able to last in your strength for a little bit, but his strength keeps you through the storm. Come on. 
You got to think about Jesus when he was out on the sea with his disciples. And he said, we're going to the other side. And he's in a boat filled with experienced fishermen. If you're going to go through a storm, you would think they would be the ones you would want because they've got the experience. But their experience was not enough in that moment. It began that the waves hit and the wind blew and the ship was about to go down. And where was Jesus in that moment? Asleep in the boat. Because he said, I'm going to the other side. And they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're dying? And he just stands up and says, peace, be still. Their strength, their experience, their skill, their ability wasn't enough. But one word from God was enough to calm the storm. And you may feel like, I'm, I'm standing strong right now, Pastor Jordan. I'm all good. I can handle it. Talk to me tomorrow when things aren't as sunny in your life and when everybody's turned against you. One word from him will still calm the storm. You know, Peter, we recognize him as someone who's pretty brash. You could call him an independent, strong person. When Jesus would say things, he would be like, that's not how it's going to be. And Jesus had to correct him and say, get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter, you're listening to the wrong source. When they came to take Jesus, Peter rose up with the little fisher knife, and he cut off the servant's ear. And Jesus is like, no, no, Peter, that's not the way this is going. Had to put it back on. He was someone who we could say was a strong, independent person. But even he had the reckoning with God that I need him above all else. And it led him to write this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourself. Or submit yourself, or present yourself, or yield yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus said this, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled or brought low, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we think that the way for, to get more strength is by exercising strength in the kingdom of God. The way to go up is to first go down. You are my master, Lord. I submit my life to you. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, if we read it in the Amplified Version, it says, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Set aside self-righteous pride so that he may exalt you to a place of honor in his service at the appropriate time. You know, if you submit yourself under the mighty hand, if that hand is stronger than every other hand, you're still above other things, right? And we think, i got to exalt my position. There's no higher exalted position than hitching your wagon to God. James echoes Peter here in James chapter 4. He says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up, and he will give you purpose. I love that. When I was reading that, this week, it was just like it went off in me that there's so many people that have no hope in this time of life. There's people who feel like they have no purpose. What, why am I here? What am I doing? What am I going to do? They've lost their purpose because they've tried to find it in themselves. And James said, you got to humble yourself under God and he'll give you that purpose. So, back to Matthew chapter 15. She came and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, Master, help me. And so essentially what Jesus had said to her in the verse before was, you're not my problem. And she came to him and she yielded herself to him and said, no, I call you 
my master. I call you my master. She essentially made it his problem. Come on. She made it his problem. And we read last week in Romans 14, 4, it says, Who are you that judges another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And so when she submitted herself to him as him being the master and her being the servant, it became his problem. And he's a good master that is able to make you stand through every trial of life. And so she cries out, Master, help me. But we told you the context. In the verses leading up to this, he was talking about how the Pharisees come and they say the right thing, but their hearts are not actually for him. So he says something to her that tests her heart. He says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. That's a little bit of an offensive statement. But you realize that's what the Jews called the Gentiles? They called them dogs? They're unworthy of God. And so he tests her heart. Are you just saying this because you need something from me? Well, what does your heart do when situation turns against you? And so instead of being offended at what he said, instead of withdrawing and saying, oh, I guess he's not going to help me, she responds in faith and says, yes, Lord. But yet even the little dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She's saying the things that fall off your table are more than enough for me. Come on. And you don't sit under his table. You as a servant of God sit at the table. Come on. David, when he was talking about the good shepherd, says that he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. So that they come before you one way and they flee seven. And so if he's saying, what do you need? And she's saying, I only need a scrap. And what the thing is, when you become the servant of God, you don't sit under the table. You sit at Come on, I was watching a period piece a few weeks ago, and it was from the, the medieval times, and there was a bunch of knights, and they had submitted themselves to the service of a great lord, a great warrior. And what he said to the one of them in a moment in the movie, he said, there will always be a seat at my table for you. Come on, if we look at the idea of lord and master, this is not one where you come into servitude where he puts hardship on you. This is a relationship where we sit down together, we feast together, we work together, we grow together, and as the master increases, so does the entire household. So we're not looking at slavery here. We're looking at hitching yourself to someone who is greater than anything you will ever face. And Jesus, when she says to him that even the little dogs eat from the crumbs from the master's table... He didn't say, oh, you got it all wrong. He said to her, oh, woman, great is your faith. He tested her heart, and it wasn't just her words saying one thing. Her heart was echoing the same thing. And when the storm comes and it pushes against you, what's your heart going to say? It's easy to say on Sunday, oh, God, I want to serve you, and then you forget them out of Monday to Saturday. No, what does your heart say? My heart says that, Lord, I am yours to command. Wherever you need me to go, I'm choosing to go. Whatever you want me to say, God, that's what I'm going to say. Whatever you want, Lord, I've submitted myself under your hand. I'll go work the job you asked me to do. I'll go talk to 
that person who's hurting, who's down, who's been beaten down by the world. I'll lift them up. I'll be your hands. I'll be your feet. I'll be your mouthpiece. What do you want, Lord? I'll call you my master, and I am yours to command. Hallelujah. So when we talk about the idea of God being Adonai, this is, we've put this later on in the series because when we're looking at the redemptive names of God, they are names that are called of him that reveal his characteristics, and Adonai is the same thing. He doesn't call himself master, you call him. He doesn't say, I have to be your master, you choose it. And so Adonai speaks that the servant can depend on the master for provision for protection and for direction. And that's the same thing we saw about the good shepherd. Because the good shepherd and the good master are the same person. And it's interesting when we see it put in this order that we can come to him for provision, we come to him for protection, and we come to him for direction. A lot of people come to God looking for things. They're looking for his provision. In a time of hardship, they're saying, God, protect me, but they're not often looking for him to direct them. But if you are directed by God, you'll find yourself right in his plan. You'll find yourself right where you need to be. And where he is, and when you're in that spot, there's protection. And where you're, where, when you're, where you're supposed to be, there's provision. These are not things that we have to try and strive for. Ours is to incline our ears to his saying and say, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? Get in that place, and the other ones just all fall into place. The word Adonai speaks of his right to rule over us. He has the right, but he doesn't exercise it. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.19, You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are he is worthy of it because he's the one that paid the sacrifice. He got up there and he gave his own life so that you could have life. His lordship conveys a sense of complete possession of the servant by the master and complete submission of the servant. Lord, I yield myself into your hands. Lord, I, I present myself before you. Lord, I am yours to command. Now, if we think about this with the Apostle Paul, he's arguably the greatest person that we see written about beyond Jesus in the New Testament. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He pioneered most of the churches we read about in the New Testament. And you would think of all the things that Paul could boast about when writing to the Romans, what did he choose to put first? Romans 1.1, he said, I'm Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. He didn't start with, I'm the apostle that God has sent to raise up churches in this season. No, he called himself first. I'm just a servant of God. I do what he wants me to do. I go where he wants me to go. I've been called to be an apostle. And so the service comes first and the calling second. And then he says that I'm separated to the good news of God. And so Paul, of all the things he could boast in, he boasted in himself as a servant first. You know, James did the same thing. James was the leader of the church at Jerusalem during the church age. And as he calls himself, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord, the master is the word kyrios there, Jesus Christ. And we see it echoed by Jude, 
Jude says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and I'm the brother of James. To those who were called, this is who he's writing to, those who have been called, those who have been sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. When you submit yourself to God and you yield yourself to him, you get preserved by Jesus Christ. But he said, I'm a bondservant. And the interesting thing about James and Jude calling themselves a bondservant first is most people don't realize that James and Jude are actually the half-brothers of Jesus. And uh, they could have said and exalted their position, oh, you know Jesus was our brother? No, they said, I call myself a servant of Jesus. Come on, these are the natural brothers of Jesus, and they weren't always like this. When we see Jesus teaching in his hometown, people had come in and they, they blocked all the entrances of the house and their people were thronging in. And his family was outside saying, go get that crazy one Jesus. We need to get him out of here. He's making us look bad. He's, like making a, he's acting a fool and he's going to make us look bad. His mother's out here and his brothers are here. And the, so they said, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. And he said, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. And so James and Jude may not have got it in the moment when Jesus was standing there on earth, when he ascended into heaven, they were like, oh, we get it now. I choose to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And so with the time we have left this morning, I want to go over to Judges chapter 6. And I want to take a look at the life of Gideon a little bit here. Is that all right with you? Yes. Good, because we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> but I'm glad you're in agreement. <laughs> and in Judges chapter 6, here we find the nation of Israel in uh, a position they've been for a number of years. They've come in, and they've stepped into the promised land that God had given them. He had Joshua take them in, and he said, clean out the land, drive everybody out, the land is yours, I give it to you. And the only thing is, they didn't fully obey. They went in and they took some of the cities, but not all of the cities. They, he told them not to marry into certain people there, and they went ahead and did it anyways. And so in the time, they pushed out enough people that they had space, but they didn't take all of the land that God told them to do. They were only halfway obedient. And so coming years down the road, what's happened is as they grew, the people around them are like, oh, we got to stop this. If we don't deal with them now, they're going to overthrow us. Well, that was kind of the point in the beginning. They were supposed to do that. And so after, army after army keeps rising up against them, and the people turn away from God and get themselves in a tight spot, and then they call on God, and he sends someone to deliver them. And then after a few years, it's like, oh, thanks, God, thanks, God, and then they go and serve other gods. And so they keep, they're on this roller coaster of life where it's like, I follow God, things go good. I turn away from God, things don't go good. And so it's been happening for several hundred years at this point when, when uh, Gideon comes on the scene. And so in chapter 6, verse 7, it starts like this. They've been, they've been conquered, basically, by the Midianites. And it says, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. So this is the point where they turn back to the Lord. That the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage. So he's, he's reminding them of where they've come from. He says, not only did he come out of Egypt, he says, I brought you out of the house of bondage. Well, wasn't Egypt the one that was subjecting them? So he wasn't just talking about, I've delivered you from Egypt. 
He's saying, I've delivered you so that you don't have to be bound by anyone. He says, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you, and I gave them your land. And also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What he was saying to them is, guys, I asked you to do something, and you chose not to do it, and now you're not happy that you're stuck in this position. And I'm like, man, I can testify that that's how I've been a lot of times, where God tells me to do something, and I have to do it, and then I don't like how it turns out, and I'm like, God, why is it like this? Why haven't you come through like you said? And he always lovingly reminds you, because you only did half of what I asked you to do. Go all the way. We're not partially yielded to God. Go ahead and present yourself, as Paul says, as a living sacrifice before God. So he says, you haven't obeyed my voice. Now we jump to him talking to Gideon in verse 11. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, we told you when we were dealing with Abraham about 10, 11 weeks ago now, that when you see the angel of the Lord, that's not talking about an angel coming to talk on behalf of God. They use this as a placeholder for God revealing himself and talking about what needs to be done face-to-face with one of his servants. And so when it says the angel of the Lord came down, it doesn't talk like an angel saying, God has sent me to tell you this. No, God talks directly to them. And so that's the situation we have with Gideon here. This is God coming to have a face-to-face meeting with Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And it's a good thing that God sees things in you that you don't see because he calls a mighty man of valor while Gideon is hiding in a hole processing his wheat so that the Midianites don't find him. This doesn't sound like someone who's a mighty man of valor. This sounds like a coward who's hiding. It's not like he's standing up on the hill. Come on, guys. Let's go process the wheat. Dare those Midianites to come at me. No, that's not what's going on here. And so God was seeing something in Gideon that Gideon wasn't seeing in himself. And he says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And then Gideon says back to him, oh, my master, my Adonai, my Adonai, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened to us? And where are the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So he starts off with, yes, you're the master. And when you come face to face with God, you can't help but to be like, yes, whatever you want. But he says, you're my master. And then he brings all of his complaints to him. It's like, why has this happened? Why are we like that? Where are your miracles? And it's funny because God completely ignores it and says, Go in this might of yours. (laughs) Go in this might of yours. Just completely ignores the griping, ignores the complaining, and goes with the first thing. You're my master. What might was he telling him to go in? In his own might. In God's might. Don't take your strength. Don't take your complaints. Don't look at what hasn't happened. Go ahead and submit yourself to the master. And so he says, 
Oh, my master, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. So he's like, he just goes right back into it. He's missing the point. What God was saying to him, you're asking where are the miracles? I'm going to make you the miracle, Gideon. I'm going to have you walk through it. And the Lord says to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Now, we need to understand that the one man he's talking about is not Gideon. The one man he's talking about is the master. We're going to go through this, and there's going to be one person that you need, Gideon. There's one person that you need to rely on. It's not yourself. It's not everyone who's going to come up with you. Man, there's only one person you need, and it's the master. And so when he says one man, Gideon takes more than one person with him. At first, he, uh, he get call, puts the call out, and 32,000 people show up. But in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. I didn't realize that was a problem when it comes to warfare. The more the merrier, right? The more people going into battle against a, a superior force is better. But God does not look at the way we look at things. And so he looks at these 32,000 people and he said, we only need one person, and that's me. And so Gideon says to the people, if anybody's afraid, you can go ahead and go home. You don't know how many people left? 22,000 people. <laughs> so if there was too many people before, well, mo two-thirds of your army just left. And so they're left with 11,000 people. Or 10,000 people. Get my math right. And God turns to Gideon and said, and he's, again, and says, there's still too many people. I don't need all these arms. I don't need all these legs. I don't need all these voices. I just need you to trust me again, Israel. Let me be the master. Let me be the one that you rely on for direction, protection, and provision. And so God has them lead has Gideon lead them down towards a river. And he says, I want you to watch them as he tells them to take a drink. All those who get down on their knees and shove their face right in the water to drink, tell them to go home. And everybody who sits there and grabs with their hand and drinks from their hand, you can keep them. <laughs> and it's, kinda, it's funny, but what God was looking for is people who had a little bit of order. People who could follow direction. And so after that, he's left with only 300 people. But it didn't matter how many people were left. God was the only one they needed. And so if we jump back to chapter 6 towards the latter half, we find that God has sent Gideon. Gideon, who has submitted his life to the master. What do you want me to do, God? I'll, I'll, whatever you say, I'll do it. Whatever, whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to be obedient to the best of my ability. And the thing that God asked him to do first is this. He says, now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and the second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that the father, your father has and cut it down, the wooden idol that is beside it. What was the first thing the master asked the servant to do? Get rid of all the other masters. 
Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon, or God and anything else. And when it comes to our lives, when we present God to ourselves to God as his servants to command, there's nothing else that needs to be in that top tier. And what it speaks is God doesn't get our leftovers, God gets our best. And when you give God your best, you always ensure that you walk in his best. God doesn't get the leftovers of my time. God doesn't get the leftovers of my attention. God doesn't get the leftovers of my family. God doesn't get the leftovers of my money. God doesn't get the leftovers of my ability. God gets my first and my best every time. And you can see why this isn't a popular message to preach. Because right now in the body of Christ, we can't get people to show up to church. We can't get people to pray. We can't get people to read their Bibles. Why? Because they're serving so many other gods. And Jesus talked about that when we take the seed of the word and we plant it in our hearts, that there are other things that pop up and try and choke it off. The thing is, when you put God first, there's nothing else that has that place to choke it off. Honor the word, honor the Lord, and put him first. And so Gideon obeys God, and it says, And God said to him, Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the rock and in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice in the wood of the image which you shall cut down. And so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord said, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And I love this part of the story because Gideon was obedient, but God's still working all the other details of his heart out. And so he, just like we find him in the beginning of the story, he's hiding in a hole, threshing his wheat so the Midianites don't find him. He's like, God, I'll obey, but I don't want anybody else to see me. And so he goes and he tears down the altar and he sets it up to do the sacrifice unto God, but he does it at night so nobody else can see me. Uh, thank God that he, he's okay with us walking the journey of letting our hearts be transformed moment by moment and day by day. You may not be doing it all right right now, but keep doing what you know to do and do it with the best of your ability. And so he goes and he does what he needs to do. He does it by night so nobody sees him. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And so he tried to not let anybody else see it, but the word inevitably gets found out. So you might as well go ahead and do what God has asked you to do and do it right out in the open. Who cares what everybody else thinks? If they're going to find out anyways, you might as well be, yeah, I did it because God told me to do it. And I'm not ashamed, just as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. You don't have to be afraid that who knows you're a Christian? Who knows that you go to church? Who knows that you read your Bible? Who cares? Go after God and he'll sort it all out. And so they found out it was Gideon. And it says, the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. Because he has torn down the altar of Baal. And because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash 
said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would, would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because the altar's been torn down. What, what was the jo Gideon's dad saying? He's saying, if these things are so worthy of our attention, let them come and save you. If these things are so powerful that we can't pry our attention away and give it to God, well then let them be your provider. Let them be your protection. Let them be your direction. But he knew fully that they'd been serving Baal for a lot of years at this point, and he got them into that position of being servants to another nation when God had set them free. Come on. You don't have to be slave to anything anymore. Go ahead and submit yourself as a servant to God and he'll lead you out. He says, therefore on that day he called him Jerubbabel, saying let Baal plead against him because he's torn down his altar. Then all of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and camped at the valley of Jezreel. And so Gideon has made his stand. He said, God, you're the master. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And he goes and does it. And then it doesn't look like the situation is getting better. It looks worse because now they've, the Malachites and the Midianites and all of the other people bring out their army. And sometimes when you put your foot in the right direction, it doesn't look like things get better right away. But he didn't ask you to take a step for a moment. He said, submit yourself unto him. Humble yourself under his mighty hand, and he will exalt you at the right time. And as they began to gather their armies to come after Gideon, it says, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And he blew the trumpet and the Abizrites gathered behind him. As soon as he decided, nope, I'm not going back. I could go back and hide in that hole. I could go and start trying to do things at night again. But when he decided, no, I'm not going to be moved because the master told me to be here. That's when God began to take hold of his hand again. And do you know that those 300 people that he was left with after he said, hey, if you're afraid, go home. And then they looked at, well, how do you drink water? Do you have a little bit of order to you? When he was left with just those 300 people, do you know that those 300 people didn't even have to fight? God brought confusion in the camp so that when the Midianites and the Amalekites looked up, God had had the, the 300 surround them and light a candle so that it looked like there was thousands of people surrounding them. And when they saw them, they said, we're surrounded by the Israelites. And then they took off and ran home on their own. Because God said, I don't need your army, Gideon. I'm going to deliver you by one man. And that's all you need today. You just need that one man, and that one man is Jesus Christ. That one person is enough to deliver you from any situation. That one person is enough to protect you in whatever you may find yourself. That one man is enough to give you the direction you need to actually make a difference in your community, to actually lead your family, to actually be an impact at your job or wherever you find yourself to be. That one man, that Jesus Christ, is enough. 
Now, maybe you're in here this morning or you're watching us via online and you haven't made that decision that Jesus is going to be your master. You don't want to wait another moment. Today is the day. He is worthy. He's a good master who will protect and direct and provide in every season of your life. But it first starts with a moment where we say, Lord, I call you my master. So church, let's pray with them online right now and say, Father, I ask for Jesus. I invite you into my life right now. I believe that God has raised you from the dead. And right now I call you my master, my savior, my Lord. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with us online this morning, we would love for you to get in contact with us. We would love to get some resources into your hands and get you hooked up with a good church in your area. If you're in the Smith Falls area, we say welcome home. We would love to walk this journey together with you. In just a moment, our Word Care team is going to be right up here at the front, and they would love to pray with you, believe with you, whatever. If you, if you need healing in your body, come on, let someone believe with you. If you need provision and direction, get in contact with the Master today. They would love to celebrate with you, testify with you. Whatever you need, go ahead and use them today. If you want to give this morning, you can do so at wordchurch.ca forward slash give. There's also envelopes in the seat and basket at the back. Whatever you choose to do, we just say thank you for partnering together with us. But guys, he is Adonai. He is the master. And everything that you may encounter in your life, he is the only one who is worthy. Let's have some coffee and have some good conversations.